As I said, my name is Alex. If you're new today or if you've just walked in, I'm one of the curates here, which means I work for the church full time, which means I drink a lot of tea and a lot of coffee and often in my favorite mug. And yes, that is a countdown mug. Now, those of you who might know what countdown is, probably because you haven't worked or, or you've had some time off and you like daytime TV, you know there's only one way to get a countdown mug, right? And that's to go on countdown. Can we have a picture, please? Yeah, yeah, TV celeb, that's me. Um, now before I tell you a bit, let's keep that up. I have imposter complex in a big way. Now imposter complex is a thing psychologists reckon that says that actually you always feel like you're the wrong person for the job, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not intelligent enough, all that stuff. Some of you may be thinking that right now, you might have received grades and that might be a valid response. The thing is, is I went on countdown because my wife's granddad had watched every single episode ever aired since it first came on telly. He's in his 90s. And I thought, well, that would be a nice gift for him if he knew someone who was on this program that he loved. But also, I smashed the telephone interview. So I did really well. And if you know what countdown is, you have some words rounds, or scramble up letters. You have to get the longest word. And then the numbers rounds. Who already has worked out the numbers rounds? Hands up. Patrick. Can we give a round of applause for Patrick? Come on up. Come on up, Patrick. Come on, round of applause, Patrick. Come on, big numbers guy. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, Patrick. This is Patrick. He's a clever guy. Tell us this really complicated answer to this riddle. It's nine times 100 plus four times eight minus seven minus three. Brilliant. Round of applause. Round of applause. Was he right? I don't know how he did it, but um, I got it right at that time. However, imposter complex that day was totally valid that I was not smart enough. In fact, there's a place on Wikipedia reserved for people who did as badly as I did on Countdown. I got below 30 points in the whole thing, and the average is about 60 points. And the guy who beat me ended up winning eight rounds, which meant he was an octo-champ, which means if you're a nerd, he's a super nerd. The thing is, this imposter complex, it, it actually feeds its way into my Christian life as well. That am I really good enough for God's grace? Am I really good enough to be saved? Am I really good enough for Jesus to use for his great commission that he sends the rest of his church out for? Sure, the person on my left who gets up at four in the morning to pray in the sunshine, surely they're ready. Surely they're good enough. Surely Sam with his wonderful hair and his beautiful singing voice, surely he's good enough. But not me. I've got a load of mess. I've got a whole ton of stuff that I need to deal with. So I want to ask a question this evening. What difference, hypothetically speaking, what difference would it make if you knew that you were eternally, everlastingly, without any condition, held in a constant gaze of love? What would that do to you? Imagine what difference it would make if you knew that no matter what you did, no matter who you were, no matter what you were going through, your default position is one who is loved. The thing is, the concept of love is, is an overused one, over-commercialized, especially if you're going to Clinton Cards or anything like that. It's overused. And the thing is, if you're new to church, the Christian faith has something very concrete to say about love. Something very tangible, something very non-abstract, something very solid to say about the concept of what love is. It's not about love hearts and teddy bears. And the thing is, is what John wants to do is he wants to encourage us to, to look at this concept of love, 
to meditate on it. And as the Old Testament writers say, to like wrap it around your foreheads. Get your mind around what we're talking about when it comes to love. We've been going through a series in the book of 1 John. And 1 John does, what he carries on doing is he's writing to this church that are kind of second or third generation Christians. And he keeps on repeating the same thing, but then adding a bit more. He keeps on saying the same thing. And what he wants us to know today is that love has a definition. That it's no longer an abstract or esoteric concept. It's no longer ethereal or just an idea made by card factory. That instead, this idea of love, according to a Christian mindset, is rooted and grounded in something solid. And so if you've got a Bible near, um, I'd love you to open up to 1 John or open up on your apps or whatever. There's, there should be some around. And 1 John is right towards the right-hand side of the Bible. We're going from chapter 3, and I've, I've chosen three kind of chunks. That's not because I'm proof texting or grabbing the bits I like, but it's just to kind of summarize this whole chapter. So here we go from verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason what the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Let's go to verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And then down to verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commands us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know what he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. See how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. See how great. God the Father loves us so much that he's willing to adopt you and I, fully aware of the damage we could do to his reputation, fully aware of the damage we could do to his church, his bride, fully aware of the damage that we could do to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, fully aware of all that we bring, all that we carry, and yet God, the same hands that threw the cosmos into being, is willing to adopt us as children. Now, I've got two kids, Jemima and Rowan. Rowan turned one yesterday, and Jemima is four. And to be honest with you, I was quite anxious about having children, only because I know I was a little bit of a troublesome youth. My father's actually right at the back, so he, he could agree. Don't ask him any questions, just ignore him. But, but I realised that, actually, I, I was quite troublesome, so maybe, maybe I'm, I might not be the, the greatest parent because um, I would just encourage all kinds of bad behaviour. But the thing is, is that when you decide to have children, you can, there are certain predictabilities around it. 
So the thing is, I love my wife, and I think she's quite a lovely person. And so I was praying as we had children that, that her loveliness would counterbalance um, my cheekiness, maybe, or my bad behavior. However, my oldest one is now four, and that's proving to be a bit of a trouble. But the thing is, is when you choose to have children, if you can, biologically, there are some predictable outcomes. That the genes we share, you can kind of say, oh, I, lo- I love you, you love me, we love each other. Maybe the, 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 the being we create will be lovable. The thing that I find insane, apart from having multiple children, is, is the concept of adoption. And I've got some dear friends who adopt. And the thing is, is what they've chosen to do is open up their home, open up their love, without any, without any control over who they're welcoming in. That they've actually said, we'll take whoever. And so a dear friend of mine has, has got a brother and sister who came from a horrendous background. And regardless of background, regardless of baggage these two carry, from day one, they're now in the eyes of law and, and in their eyes, part of their family, welcomed in. And it's interesting that the Bible writers use the concept of adoption rather than biological birth so often talk about our place within the family of God. That God goes to us and says, regardless of all that you carry, regardless of how you feel about yourself, regardless of how your impact in the world, I'm going to call you son. I'm going to call you daughter. And in fact, I'm going to go further than that and say that actually as you go out from this place, you're going to be a dwelling place for my spirit. And even further that, you're going to be an ambassador. So when people see you with all your brokenness, all your flaws, all that stuff, they actually see me. They actually see God. It's outrageous. I mean, we sing that song about the reckless love of God time and time again, but it's truly reckless. It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And yet, love in this context looks outrageous, looks reckless. The thing is, the love that the Father and the Son have and they share with their spirit is so, is so life-giving that there's always room for more. Our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he's willing to pay a massive price so that you can be part of that family. Our Heavenly Father loves us so much that you aren't simply another number amongst two billion representatives across the world working for this conglomerate called Christianity, but you're invited at the top table every single day. You're invited to feast with him every single day as you open the words of God and and as you pray. You're not praying to some distant CEO, but you're praying to a heavenly father who loves you so much that he would give everything to be with you. The other day I was cycling home from, from work and, and I kind of had one of those moments where your, your kind of thoughts go on a, a little tangent. And I thought, if God loves me like I love my daughters, but even if, like the Bible says, God loves us even more than that, but if, I, if God loves me even, even a bit like how I love my daughters then I've been approaching prayer all kinds of wrong. Because imagine if my four-year-old daughter came up to me and she had prepared this prayer that had a load of long words, that had a load of requests. Oh, Father, I beseech thee, would you acquire for me a microscooter for my next birthday? I will give you every, I will do everything. I will be good for you. I will be righteous in your sight. I'll be holy and blameless. I will get up every morning at four. She does that, but not for the same reasons. But like if, if my daughter approached me like that, I'd be nothing but offended and slightly worried about what kind of relationship we were fostering. And so suddenly, as I was cycling home, I was like, my prayer life needs to change because God, God wants me to be intimate with him. 
And so instead of just giving my list of requests every now and then or, or just formulating nicely crafted prayers, instead it becomes way more than that, way deeper than that. It becomes all about conversation and relationship. And so every day as I'm, as I'm cycling, every day as I'm doing my work, suddenly that becomes an opportunity for relationship. Because as, as you know, if you've got children or cousins or nieces who are little, they don't leave you alone sometimes. <laughs> you can be doing anything. Sometimes sitting on the toilet and you get an interruption. The thing is, God wants us to, to be with him so much. So great is his love for us. The thing is, his love requires a response though. You can't be indifferent to an offer of love. You can either reject it, which when I was 12 and I was at high school, the day before Christmas holidays, I gave the girl of my dreams at that point a present. She was into horse riding and I gave her a beanie baby horse. Which, if you're at high school, well, cool. It was wrapped up. I gave it to her at the beginning of, beginning of the day. It was the last day of school term. And I went to meet her to, to garner her response, to see what wonder was across her face, to, to see the penny drop as she realized that I was the man also of her dreams. So I knew she had science, so I left a bit early. And I went to her science lab that she was with, everyone else, and there that beanie baby was, being set alight upon a Bunsen burner. <laughs> Love requires a response. That was a rejection. <laughs> However, love also requires a response. You can't be indifferent to it. Love changes us. When we know we are loved, when we know that we are held eternally in a gaze of love, when we know that we are an object of God the Father's affections, it requires a response. Because the thing is that love won't ever go away. Even if we reject it, it's still there, as we know throughout all the parables Jesus shares about God's love. But my second question is this, what difference would it make, hypothetically speaking, if everyone that you knew was also held in that same gaze of love? All the people you love, all your friends, all your family, all the people you struggle with, all the people you work alongside, those people that you have in your life because you've chosen to have them in, those people you have in your life because they're there. <laughs> what, would it, what difference would it make if they also were held in that infinite gaze of love? Because in verse 16, as we see from this chapter, a sign of the saved life, John would argue, is the unified church, is a church that loves one another. And as we know from Jesus' words, that the world will know we're the disciples of Jesus by what? By the way we love one another. Not by our flashy sermons, not by what we do, but it's the way we love one another. In the book of Genesis, there's a fascinating story between two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob has one of the biggest cases of the imposter complex known in the Bible. In fact, at one point, he even wears fur so that his blind father... As he would touch him, he would think he's his slightly hairier older brother. He had such an imposter complex, he was willing to, to wear a costume for the occasion. And the thing is about Jacob is he was constantly wanting something that didn't belong to him. And he would acquire it by his own way. And then he, he, he spent the rest of his life running away. And then in Genesis 33, we find this interesting story where Esau, his brother, is approaching him from the distance. And Esau wants to restore the relationship that was broken years ago. But what Jacob does is he instantly fears him. 
And so he sends a load of presents, a load of camels and donkeys and people and, and gold and everything he has because he's so guilty and so shamed that he thinks that surely Esau wants to come and take over. Surely Esau wants to steal the stuff back. And so Jacob sends all this stuff up and Esau comes and he embraces him and he holds him in an embrace. And then Jacob says, Esau says, why did you send that stuff? And Jacob said, I want you to have it, take it. I'm just your servant. And Esau looks at him and says, no, you're my brother. And then in that moment, Jacob says this, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. That in that moment of restoration, in that moment of peace, there was something divine happening. But love requires a response. And for Jacob, it was too much. Thing is, Esau then says to him, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. Basically saying, I now for the rest of my life want to live life alongside you and we'll go and travel together. And yet Jacob, it's too good for Jacob. It's too good because surely Jacob was too broken. Surely Jacob had work to do. Surely Jacob had to restore this relationship somehow. But the thing is, when we drop those barriers, when we drop those divides, because what then happens is Jacob goes and says to Esau, I'll go and live in this bit of land and you go and live in that bit of land. And we might interact every now and then, but it'll be a kind of like a trade agreement. We might, we might occasionally rub shoulders, but, but it's, it's, it's not a brotherly relationship whatsoever. Because the thing is, barriers keep life simple. It says, actually, I'm over here, I'll do my life thing here. And you're over there and you do your life thing there. But what Esau was offering wasn't an easy life, quite a complex one. Because when we drop the barriers, life gets messy and unpredictable. And the good news of Jesus is this, that he, he extends his love to you with all your baggage. He drops all those barriers, not for an easy life. Because love is complex, isn't it? As we work out daily, it's why we come to church to try and get advice on how to work out this thing called love every single Sunday of our life. But it's complex. It's not simple. But the good news is this, is that you are so loved that it doesn't matter about the complexity. We'll work that stuff out. That's why we come here. When I first became a Christian, I got taken in um, to live with this wonderful Christian family. And they taught me all kinds of things about reading the Bible in the morning, saying grace over dinner, all this amazing stuff. And I was meant to stay there for three months and it ended up being four years. Um, but because of my experience with them and, th and their grace that they offered me, um, my wife and I, when we got married, decided that whatever the cost, and I was a youth worker, so I didn't, wasn't on much money, but whatever the cost, we'd also try, we'd always try and pay extra rent so we could always have a spare room just in case. And the thing is, if I'm telling the truth, 90% of the time, it was amazing. People would stay in our house. They'd be wonderful house guests. They would wash up after themselves. They would sometimes even cook for themselves. Not always, but sometimes. They would take the bins out sometimes. They'd walk our dog and all that stuff. But there were three occasions that were truly heartbreaking. Where our house got trashed once when we were on holiday. Where our bed got broken. Don't know how they were sleeping in our bed. But whatever they were doing. But where our, where our house and the relationship and the trust were just abused and misused. And it caused real heartbreak. But because my wife is so holy, she insisted that we would always do it. Because she said that God always has room. And so we should too. And I was annoyed because it sounded so good. <laughs> the thing is, is just saying that God the Father loves us is nothing new. 
It's nothing new for a Roman mindset. It's nothing new for a Greek mindset that they're writing in the New Testament. Because the Greeks and the Romans did have a concept of loving gods. That if you worshipped a certain god and you did the right things at the right time and you sacrificed at a certain point and you lived your life in a certain way, then potentially you may be blessed with good rain, good crops, fertility, safety, family, money, whatever, potentially. So there's nothing new about the idea of a loving God. However, John wants us to know that these esoteric, ethereal, abstract notions of love find their foundation and their grounding and their being in something solid. That we see an example. John says, this is how we know what real love is. It looks broken and poured out. Not Clinton cards, not sanitized, not fridge magnets, not cuddly bears, not even beanie baby horses. <laughs> looks broken and poured out. We see it on the cross. We remember it at communion. And we try and work it out every day of our lives. When you look at Jesus' life, he was so interruptible. He was having a meal with some friends once and someone just burst through the doors with a load of perfume and just poured it over his feet. Interruptible. Also, he always had a posture for the outsider. He was once walking down the road and sees a, a really short guy, I, I, I relate to him, up a tree, Zacchaeus, and said, come down for that tree, I'm having dinner at your house. Always postured towards the outsider. And he was also filled with compassion, which is a real physical sensation, a real physical stirring for those who are less off, who are poorer in spirit, who are poorer in finance, who are poorer in all kinds of ways. And Jesus had a real passion for them. The focus for the Christian should never be, am I good enough? It should never be, am I worthy enough? It should never be, am I sorted enough? Am I right? But it's about the position of others. Is that person, to my left or to my right, a worthy recipient of the love of God? And the thing is, is reception of the love of God isn't based on position, isn't based on, on who they are, their performance or their popularity. It's based on one thing. Do they have a pulse? And if they've got a pulse, then they are a worthy recipient of the love of God. The truth is, is we are all imposters. We're all wearing someone else's skin. But yet the Bible says when God looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus. And so we're able to rest. We're able to find our being in the very love of God. And so never is the gospel meant to throw guilt our way. It's meant to convict us, yes, but to point us towards the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have. So we no longer live like orphans or captives, but free people of God. And so I'm afraid I don't have a, a three-point application for you tonight. You might have been looking for it. But the application is simple here. In verse 23, it says this, trust in Jesus and love one another. That's it. That is our response to this stuff. Trust in Jesus and love one another. But we all know that is such a mammoth task. We all know that is so difficult, that, that, spent, that theologians spend their life working out what the intricacies of those phrases even mean. That we all need advice, we all need help. And that's because the good news is this. How do we know we're loved? We know it by the spirit he gave us. 
That is how we know that God lives in us. By God's promise that our bodies are now a dwelling place for his spirit. And that's it. See how great the Father's love is, that he lavishes upon you. And that love no longer is an abstract notion, but we see it on the cross. And how do we know that God loves us? Because he's willing to let you and let me be a dwelling place for his spirit. So as we stand, if you're able, should we pray? Should we ask that God would show us that love, that God would fill us with his spirit? Let's stand, shall we?